0: I invite you to open your Bibles to James chapter 1 verse 26 and 27. As you're doing that, I pointed out in the first service I thought I would do it in the second. When we take communion, you may notice that we have a written confession of sin. And that is so that we're not only communion in our communion time in the Lord's Supper, but also agreeing with one another as we confess the sin. Um, it, it's a beautiful thing when you think about the the liturgy of our service because um, when we confess our faith, we're confessing to one another and unto the Lord. Um, it, it's encouraging to know that I have brothers and sisters who believe the same as me. And when we confess our sin, usually we do it privately, and that is something you should do every Sunday, in fact, all week long. Um, But for communion, we do it corporately, and it's a reminder to me that we all have the same sin to confess, that we fall short to the glory of God. And so that is why the liturgy functions the way it does. Well, now in our liturgy, in our time of worship, God speaks to us through His Word. And I'll be reading verses 26 and 27. Hear now the Word of the Lord. If anyone thinks he is religious... And does not bridle his tongue, but deceives his heart. This person's religion is worthless. Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this. To visit orphans and widows in their affliction. And to keep oneself unstained from the world. Well, Father, we pray now that you would indeed speak to your people. Uh, convict our hearts. Convict the hearts of those who may be here to don't know you. Convict us of our sin, and we pray that in Christ's name. Amen. Well, in the late 19th, early 20th century, John Taylor Smith was the bishop in the Church of England, and he tells this story of having going, going to get his hair cut, and he wanted to talk to his hairdresser about the important, more weightier matters of life about the gospel. Uh, But he found that every time he tried to do that, his barber was so talkative that he couldn't get a word in edgewise. Well, finally, the bishop was able to speak up and he said, Do you consider yourself religious? And the barber said, Ah, yes, I do. I always try to do my best in life. Well, the barber finished cutting his hair and the bishop paid him and said, You yourself could use a haircut. And he goes, Yeah, I know. I haven't had time. I've been so busy, I haven't been able to cut my own hair. And the bishop said, well, sit down. I'll cut your hair for you. He goes, you couldn't cut my hair, said the barber. Yes, I could, replied the bishop. I will do my best. Well, thank you, but your best isn't good enough for me, said the barber. And he said, yes, you're right. And your best isn't good enough for God. Your best isn't good enough for God. And James says to us this morning if you think that it is, you are deceived. That is what he's going to address in our passage today. Three times. James has mentioned this idea of Christians being deceived. In verse 16, don't be deceived, my dear brothers. In verse 22, do not merely listen to the word and so deceive yourselves. And now in verse 26, if anyone thinks he is religious and does not bridle his tongue but deceives his heart. James is writing to people like us, people to go to church. They, these people have come from the Jewish religion, and they have now embraced Jesus. They are now coming to worship on the Lord's Day. They're, they're singing, they're praying, they're partaking of the Lord's Supper. They're religious people. Uh, by religious, James means outward worship, outward expressions of Worship. Those he wrote to were doing that, and yet some were deceived that these outward expressions of worship, that their religion was good enough for God. And see, that's why they're a lot like us. We're a religious people. We, we come to worship. Here we are today. We pray. We read our Bibles. We confess our sin, as I mentioned, and, and we confess our faith, the things we believe. We sing our hymns, and we're going to partake of the Lord's Supper. And yet some of us here may be deceived. One writer said all your religious activity can produce a deadly religious delusion. James says your religion may be worthless. Have you ever thought about that? Ever stopped to think that all that you do for God, everything you're doing here this morning, maybe what you claim throughout the week, it may all be worthless, it may not achieve your goal. God may not accept it. Understand, understand this. I, I think people have a hard time with this. God is not obligated to accept your religion. He, he, even if it's sincere, you hear that all the time, don't you? Well, I'm being sincere. You, you hear it all the time. Who are you to judge? Who are you to judge? What right do you have to tell someone else that their spirituality, the way they express themselves, their religion is worthless? And the answer is found right here. Because God's word warns us that there is acceptable religion and there is unacceptable religion. And we need to learn the difference. And we need to learn the difference because eternity hangs in the balance. And so what James does here is gives us three litmus tests of true religion, religion that is truly acceptable to God, three tests, one, a bridal tongue, two, care for the needy, and three, a holy life. Now before I look at these three signs of true religion, I, I think I probably don't have to say this, but let me be clear, it's not an exhaustive definition of true religion, there's more to it. James is not saying, oh, all i got to do is bridle my tongue, care for the needy, and live kind of holy, and then I'll be accepted before God, who cares about all the other things that the Bible talks about. That's not what he's saying. James is presenting these three things as a sufficient test of true religion. He's saying, look, these three things must be a part of every true religion. And this raises the question, why does he pick these three things? It, it, it seems kind of arbitrary. In fact, the whole time, we talked about this the other week, that James seems to be jumping from topic to topic, and now he's doing it again. He's been talking about our obedience to the law of liberty, the perfect law, that we must be hearers, we need to be receivers, we need to be doers of the law, doers of the word. That's what he's been focusing on. All of a sudden, he says, he gives us his three marks of true religion, and so what do we do with that? Why is he changing subjects? Well, this is where the commentators help us to follow the flow of the text and understand what's going on. And he's not, he's not um, changing subjects, really. He's being deliberate. Remember, he began in verses 18 and 19 with the new birth, uh, that we're born again by the Spirit. Then he, then he spoke of growing in the new birth, in your new life that we now possess in 19 and 25. And so we had the new birth, our new life, and now he addresses the kind of characteristics that this new life displays. That's verses 26 and 27. Basically, he's saying, look, you need to be doers of the Word. I've already told you that. You need to be hearers, receivers, and doers of the Word. And I want you to be doers of the Word in these three areas. He's deliberate. And in fact, he's, he's being deliberate by making a connection between these three tests for us of true religion and the very character of God. See, the three tests that James gives us of true religion are three truths about God that are found in verse 18. In verse 18, this is what we read. Of His, God's own will, He brought us forth by the word of truth that we should be a kind of firstfruits of His creatures. First, God cares for the needy. By an act of his own will, by his choice, he brought us hellbound sinners in desperate need of salvation. He regenerated us and met our need as sinners. He did what we couldn't do for ourselves. And, and James is gonna say, do the same. Care for those who can't do for themselves. Care for the needy. Why? That's that's who God is. Second, he did this for us by the living word he spoke. His tongue, as it were, was used for good. And so our tongue, James is saying, it, it, it is to be bridled, used for good. It's not to be used for evil. Third, his living giving word, life-giving word had a purpose. And that purpose was uh, uh, the, that we should be a kind of first fruits. He gave us life so that we could belong to him and and, and, and live. Like him, live holy. Keep yourselves unstained from the world. And so James isn't just picking any three arbitrary tests. What he's saying is, like father, like son and daughter. Follow your father. It's only right that the life God has given us in himself should bear the same fruit that's found in him, in his character. And James is so convinced of this he finds these three true tests of religion so central that he devotes, actually, the remainder of the book is going to be about these three things. In chapter 2, he will discuss caring for the needy. In chapters 3, verses 1 to 12, he will discuss controlling the tongue. And in chapter 3, 13 and 5, 6, he's going to discuss living a holy life. That's how important these three tests are. He's going to build off of this. And so do you want to know what acceptable religion is to God? And do you want to know so that you're not deceived? Then James says, what is true of the Father must be true of you. You must bridle your tongue, you must care for the needy, and you must live a holy life. As one writer put it, you must exercise restraint, you must live a selfless life, and you must not compromise with the world. And we're going to look at all three. first. You must bridle your tongue. Do you exercise restraint? Verse 26. If anyone thinks he is religious and does not bridle his tongue but deceives his heart, this person's religion is worthless. Now, Kent Hughes says this is a terrifying statement to say the least. An out-of-control tongue suggests bogus religious devotion. No matter how sincere your religion is, The word "bridle" means to guide and to hold in check, to to restrain. That's why the question, uh, uh, exercise restraint, it means to restrain. He's not saying we should be speechless, but rather like a wild horse that is uncontrolled. Our tongue needs to be broken. It needs to be harnessed. And how true this is. I've been in ministry now, not as long as many, but I've been in ministry over 30 years. And I believe that more harm is done in the church by those who can't control the tongue than any other sin. Gossip and slander and critical speech are almost commonplace in the church. John MacArthur says that the average person speaks about 18,000 words in a day. It's enough for a 54-page book. In a year, that amounts to 66 800-page volumes. Basically, up to the fifth of a person's life is spent talking. Now, I'm not a betting man. But if I was, I would wager that of the 18,000 words spoken in a day, many people could speak half of that, and we'd all be better off. And we wouldn't be forced to listen and I say that because Jesus says for by your words you will be justified and by your words you will be condemned Matthew 12:37 And Paul says, each of you must put off falsehood and speak truthfully to his neighbor, Ephesians 4.25. And do not let unwholesome talk come out of your mouths, Ephesians 4.29. All the cursing, all the lying, all the bickering, all the complaining reveals more about your religious beliefs, more about where you stand with God than any other indicator. This is why James, if you noticed or not, I'm not sure, James changed the order of the three tests. Remember, the order is given where? In verse 18, it's in reference to God. It is care for the needy, the spoken word, and holy living. That's the order that he started with. And the order James will follow in the remainder of the book is that same order. Care for the needy, control the tongue, and holy living. But here in verse 26, he puts control of the tongue first. And that's because the tongue is kind of a a window to the heart. Notice that he connects the tongue to the heart. If anyone thinks he is religious and does not bridle his tongue, but deceives his heart. He's saying this, what comes out of your mouth, what comes out of my mouth reveals my heart, reveals your heart. The tongue is listed first because it gives a direct answer to the question who do you belong to? Are you a child of God? If the heart is right, the tongue will show it. That's what Jesus said. How can you speak good when you are evil? For out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. And so this unbridled tongue reveals that all your talk about religion is worthless. I don't know how many times I've heard people say, I probably have said it too, so this is a judgment on myself, but how many times I've heard people say that they have the gift to speak in their mind. Let me me be honest, I understand what you're getting at there, that you're, you're able to tell people what you really think. Um, But in a worst-case scenario, you speak in your mind, is surely not a gift God has given you. It's a sin you must repent of. It it, it comes from this father of lies. It, It could be satanic. It's devilish and destructive. It needs to be bridled your tongue. Just letting everything come off your tongue is not you being true to yourself. It's you being foolish. Once while John Wesley was preaching... He noticed a lady in the audience who was known for her critical attitude. Uh, Even John Wesley got picked on when he preached. All through the sermon, she sat and stared at his new tie. She didn't like it. When the meeting ended, she came up to him and said very sharply, Mr. Wesley, the strings on your bow tie are much too long. It's an offense to me. I could tell you some stories myself, but, well, he asked if any of the ladies present happened to have a pair of scissors in their purse. When the scissors were handed to him, he gave them to his critic and said, "Uh, here, trim the streamers to her liking. And she clipped them off near the collar. He said, are you sure that's all right now? Yes, much better, she replied. Uh, And then he said, can I have the shears? And then Wesley said, I'm sure you wouldn't mind if I also give you a bit of correction. I must tell you, madam, that your tongue is an offense to me. (laughs) It's too long. Please stick it out. I'd like to cut some off. See, some of us need a little tongue trimming, as the saying would go. And so that's the first test, controlling your tongue. Do you exercise restraint? Now, we're going to... Spend more time on this because James is going to spend more time on it in chapter 3. But let's move on to our second point. You must care for the needy. Do you live a selfless life? Look at verse 27. Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction. Now, pure and undefiled are used synonymously. The first emphasizes the cleanliness. The second, freedom from contamination. And that's the kind of uh, religion that activity, that kind of religious activity that is acceptable to God. With the tongue, we were examining our own hearts. Now, James would have us look upward to God. See, pure and undefiled religion has nothing to do with what may seem best to us, or, or even best to fellow believers, but what is best in the sight of God the Father. See, the authenticity of our religion is not determined by our own standards, by the things we decide are important, or even the world decides that are important, or for that matter, maybe the church decides that are important, but what God says is important. That was the problem with the Pharisees. They had replaced God's standard and the law with their own, and many of the things we would all agree were pretty good. And so, but Jesus said this to them You nullify the word of God for the sake of your tradition. You hypocrites. Isaiah was right when he prophesied about you. These people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. They worship me in vain. This is the religious leaders at the time. Everybody looked up to them. Their teachings are but rules taught by men. Matthew 15, 6 to 8. And so the test of true religion is whether what is true of God's character is revealed in His Word is at work in your life. God's care for the needy is so clear in Scripture. God is the Father of the fatherless and protector of widows in His holy habitation, says Psalm 65. And so James says that we must care for the needy to visit orphans and widows in their affliction. The word visit means more than just uh, drop by and say hello. It carries the idea of caring for others, exercising oversight on their behalf, and helping them whenever they have a need. And who were the most vulnerable in this culture? It was orphans and widows. Uh, Their affliction came from their desperate need for shelter. They, They needed food. They needed clothing. And so what James is doing is taking them and and representing all those who have a need. And James is saying, no matter how often we confess our faith, how often we sing the great hymns, how often we recite Scripture, how often we listen intently to the Word of God preached, if we ignore the needy, our worship individually is suspect. Now, that's a warning throughout Scripture. Isaiah addressed this in chapter 1. He said, Stop bringing meaningless offerings. Speaking God, this is God speaking. Your incense is detestable to me. When you spread out your hands in prayer, I will hide my eyes from you. If you offer many prayers, I will not listen. Your hands are full of blood. Wash and make yourselves clean. Take your evil deeds out of my sight. Stop doing wrong. Learn to do right. Here it is. Seek justice, encourage the oppressed. Defend the cause of the fatherless. Plead the case of the widow. See, loving, selfless service to others is a mark of acceptable religion. Our Father cares, cares for those who have a great need. For the Lord your God is a God of God, and Lord, of Lord, the great God, mighty and awesome, who shows no partiality and accepts no bribes. He defends the cause of the fatherless and the widow, and loves the alien, giving him food and clothing. And you are to love those who are aliens, for you yourselves were aliens in Egypt, says Deuteronomy 10, 17, and 19. Those who have needs. We have Must have genuine concern for the needy among us. We should be selfless. This is what we just did, really, with the cross net collecting of food. It's just one small way. It it doesn't solve this. You can't say, oh, I'm going to, you know, I'll give my can of mushrooms and now, phew, I covered that, I could check that one off. But it's a way of saying, you know what? This cost money. This this cost me uh, time. It, It cost me all these things, but it's worth it because that person's in need and I can help. So that's the second test care for the needy. Are you living a selfless life? Third, you must live a holy life. Uh, Or do you compromise with the world? Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this to keep oneself unstained from the world, says verse 27. Now, this kind of balances things out. We, we We were to be concerned with others, and we were to look up to God and we were to be concerned with self. You must care for others, and you must keep yourself unstained from the world. Again, like father, like son. God is holy, and so he expects his children to be holy. That's what First 1 Peter 1.16 says. You have a responsibility before God for personal purity. Now, of course, God is the one who keeps, ultimately keeps his people. Uh, but you are responsible to submit to God and allow the Holy Spirit to work in you uh, so that you can be more conformed and more pure in your life. That word keep translates uh, 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 into a regular continuous action. Keep on keeping yourself unstained from the world. It, it, it's a lifelong process. That's the idea. By the world, James means you know, the spirit of the age the godless and immoral agenda of the present age, or as Paul refers to it, this crooked and perverse generation. Uh, the world, this generation is full of moral filth. And, and he's saying, look, don't be stained by it. That's what he's getting at. Now, James isn't saying you're going to be sinless, of course. We all continue to sin, but we surely must not, uh, not love it or engage in it and say, oh, well, I'm, I'm a sinner, We must grow to hate it. If you're truly saved, you will have a a different attitude towards the things the world finds so attractive. We all struggle here. I know I do. You find, uh, you know, somebody says a joke that's vulgar, and and you don't want to embarrass, and you kind of think it's funny if you're honest. You haven't grown to hate something like that. You, you, you Certain entertainment on the television or in movies, we, people just accept as regular and we don't find it grotesque. There's something wrong. Our hearts should be changing. We should hate it. It's sin. Uh, uh, displeasurable music, uh, finding pleasure or music to, in books that glorify sin. Sin is in the Bible. Sin is mentioned. We have stories of affairs and murder and killing all of it's sin. But did you ever notice in the Bible and in certain media, it's not glorified. It's seen for what the harm that it does. But a lot of our media glorifies it. Like the, the hero is the one who embraces sin. And James is saying, no, you don't find that entertaining. You should hate that. Kent Hughes says it well. James is deadly serious, and if we take him seriously, we will change our hearts when it comes to entertainment. And then he goes on to say this. Television viewing, for example. God may even be telling some of you to toss your TV out of the house, into the trash. For others, there are places you must never set foot again. And then he says, look, you need to call... Upon God now, I'll bow your heads and right now that I'm going to quit whatever it is that I know that when I leave here, I'm going to engage in and it may not be terrible. The world surely thinks it's not, but, but, it, but it needs to be renounced because the world and its agenda is what drives it. And I, and I need to remain unstained from the world. I need to turn from this. Uh, the point beloved is this: religion that is pure and undefiled before God, the Father is this: Keep oneself unstained from the world. Live a life of holiness, the pursuit of holiness. You're not going to live perfectly. And when, uh, James has warned us not to be deceived. Don't be deceived, you can't just go on. Loving sin. Don't be see, deceived in thinking all you can think of yourself and not just be selfless and care for others. And don't, don't be deceived and think you can just let your tongue run amok. Don't be deceived. And that's the problem. It's so easy. It's so easy to be deceived by your religiosity. Yeah. To think that if you come to worship on Sunday, to think that if you, uh, you know, you're, you're a preacher, you're a pastor. I mean, here I am, I'm preaching, I should be fine, that I can indulge in worldliness during the week. Yeah, but I'm going to preach on Sunday. Well, I'm going to go to church on Sunday. Uh, that you can neglect the needs of others. That you can let your tongue run wild. James is saying that's foolishness. And he's warning you. And so ask yourself James is asking it, the scripture's asking it, the Holy Spirit's asking are you exercising restraint? Do you control your tongue? Are are you selfless? Do you care for anyone but yourself? Do you care for those in need? Those who can't repay you for doing good? Are you remaining unstained from the world? Or do you just regularly compromise and say, oh, well? That's the litmus test James gives. If you fail the test, James says loud and clear, your religion is worthless. Your attendance here this morning is worthless as far as God is concerned. And so what are you to do? How do you respond? Because we all fall short. Some of you may fall much shorter than others, but we fall short. Well, you're to repent. And you're to turn to God. And to seek his forgiveness through Jesus Christ. That's what you're to do. And that brings me to my closing. As I said, this isn't an exhaustive list. James does not say everything there is to say about true religion. Do not think you can just start controlling your tongue. Well, I fell short. Drew's right. Advanced is right. I, I, I need to just start controlling my tongue. And so now, every time I want to curse someone out, I'll just think it. <laughs> and I'll make sure someone sees me when I feed the homeless. And, and I'll stop watching one of the shows that I, I shouldn't. And now God is obligated to save you and forgive you and accept your religion. But see, you got it all backwards. There's nothing wrong with doing some of that stuff other than, you know, wanting to curse someone out and thinking it too. But uh, James is assuming uh, uh, other characteristics of true religion that I have to point out. He's assuming at least one. And that's in the context. It's clear. He, he is speaking. I said this in the beginning. He's speaking to born-again Christians, born-again believers See, practicing these acceptable religious activities is worthless if it's not based on the gospel. Remember, James is writing to Jewish Christians, all of whom who have accepted the one objective true religion, the one objective true religion that's based on what? Keeping your tongue in check? No. It's based on that we are sinners, in need of a savior. It's based on the objective truth that Christ came to live a perfect life on our behalf so that he can impute to us his righteousness. It's the objective truth that Christ died for sinners and that our sin was imputed to him and we now have his righteousness that we could be forgiven. The objective truth that he rose again for our justification. We've been declared righteous in his sight because of what he has done. He's forgiven us. He's forgiven us how we use our tongue. He's forgiven us for being selfish. He's forgiven us for watching that show. See, James speaks about worthless religion, and Paul uses that same word for worthless when he says, and if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile. Your faith is worthless, same word, and you're still in your sins, Your faith is futile. It is worthless. Religious fervor, even when it's religious, God accepts. Even when you're doing the things that God wants you to do, it's an abomination to him if it's practiced hypocritically. And it's practiced hypocritically when we do it apart from our union with Christ. Unless you are born again, unless you are a new creation, all your religion is hypocritical. It is worthless, so you can't start there. It would be an outward shell. It would have no substance. It cannot save you. That's why Jesus confronted the Pharisees. Their religion, many of the things they did were correct. I'll give you one example. They didn't want to break the Sabbath. And so in order to be sure they wouldn't break God's law, what did they do? They, they put a ring around it and, and made greater laws. Oh, you can't go so far. You can't do this on that day. They added to the law. Their motive was to keep God's law. And Jesus says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. You are like whitewashed tombs, which outwardly appear beautiful, but within are full of dead people's bones and all uncleanliness. So you also outward appear righteous to others. But within you, you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. See, the Pharisees, it wasn't so much that they didn't want to break the law of the Sabbath. Who shouldn't? We shouldn't want to break the law of the Sabbath. The the problem is, is that they rejected Christ. And so, unless you're devoted to Christ, you are deceived. Acceptable religion must begin with regeneration, like Paul James began his letter, with justification. It must begin with a commitment to Christ, or it's just pure hypocrisy. And that is why James began with the tongue. If the tongue is not controlled by God, it, it, it's one of the sure indicators that the heart is not either. I mentioned last week, and this isn't me patting myself on the back, it's just, it just what happened. The one thing that changed immediately when I got saved, was my speech. Now, my mind wasn't cleansed, and my TV watching wasn't great, but, but my tongue, I realized, as soon as it started coming out of my mouth, wait, I can't say that anymore. It's funny how people will be around me just doing the most outlandish things as non-Christians, but when they say a curse word, I'm sorry, Pastor. It, 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 it's just almost intuitive, They know. And so if the tongue is controlled by God, then I can recognize, okay, I've been changed. And so you begin with Christ. Understand this. Christianity is a religion. Oh, you hear all the time, it's not a religion. But it is a religion. It's a religion based on a relationship with a living and loving Savior. That's the basis. And so true religion is an outward expression of an inward relationship with God. You can go ahead and control your tongue. Anybody can. There's probably books written by atheists on it. But it's not the religion God accepts. It's got to flow out of your relationship with Christ. It's an outward expression of an inward relationship with God. It's working out what Paul says here. Paul says it's working out what God has already worked in us. It's living out the life of Christ who, who's who's taken up residence in our hearts. He, he lives within us. Christ's tongue spoke words of life and light revealing who he really was, a man who came from God. And so our tongues now, because Christ lives within us, our tongues must do the same. You see it in scriptures, in the gospel. Christ cared for the needy. He cared for the less fortunate. He identified with who? With tax collectors and sinners. He lived a selfless life. Do the same in His power by His Spirit. Christ lived a perfectly holy life. That we cannot do now. But we're to strive for the pursuit of holiness because He was holy. We should be holy. Remember this your best isn't enough. But Christ's best is. And, and see, you were saved by, well, I'm not saved by works. You are saved by works. You're saved by Christ's work. And Christ's work, living the law, keeping it perfectly. Christ's work of dying on the Christ. Christ's work of raising from the dead. And, and out of that salvation, out of that relationship, out of that regeneration and the work of the Spirit because of Christ's life, death, and resurrection, we now... Should let our religion flow. And so bridle your tongue, but do it out of obedience to a Savior. Care for the needy, but do it in the name of Jesus. Seek to live a holy life, but do it out of a love of your master and gratitude for, for forgiving you of your sin. And see, then and only then will you have the assurance that your religion, your religion is acceptable to God that's what christianity's all about a life lived out of their relationship with their savior and so live for christ let's pray our heavenly father we hear the words we're confronted with the truth we desire, those of us here that believe, we desire to live for you and, and to put you first and, and, and to put others first and to live holy, to reject the things in this world that, that seem to grip our hearts, and yet we fall short. Please forgive us. Thank you for your son. Thank you for his grace. Thank you for the Holy Spirit. Help us to live for you, for your glory. In Christ's name, amen. Amen.